Now, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Jonah and chapter 3, that would be great. If you've not got a Bible, put your hand up, uh, and if you would like one uh, delivered to you, and one will come to you quickly. There's people who have forgotten their Bibles this week or uh, just need one. And the words will also appear on the screen. So we're going to read from uh, Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1, which says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Okay, over the last uh, few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Jonah when I've been preaching, and uh, we've seen how God has acted in Jonah's life. And we've seen that Jonah has been through some real highs and lows, through some ups and downs. He rebelled against God. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He tried to run away. He was off. He was off to as far away as he could. You know, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And God sought him out. And God brought him back to this place where at the start of chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Jonah Jonah hadn't been given up on. God hadn't changed his plans. Jonah isn't yesterday's news. Despite his rebellion, despite him running away from God, despite his attitudes, God hasn't given up on him. And neither has he given up on Nineveh. Neither has he thought, oh, do you know, this city of Nineveh? It's just a sinful city. It's just an evil city. Do you know, Jonah, even my prophets don't want to go there. I'm I'm just going to leave them to it. I'll just destroy Nineveh. No, he brings Jonah back. And he says, Jonah, you're my man. You're my servant. I want you to go and preach this message to Nineveh. He'd not given up on Jonah. He'd not given up on Nineveh. It was good news. It was good news for Jonah. It was good news for Nineveh. It's good news for us too. When we rebel, when we try and run away, when we don't want anything to do with God anymore. It's good news. He's not given up on us. He doesn't give up on us. It's good news for our city too. When we see things going on in our city and we think, how can God turn. When we see things in our nation, God doesn't give up. God hasn't given up 
on our city. And actually, as the word of God comes to Jonah a second time here, we see the slightest indication that God is going to pour out his mercy on Nineveh. In chapter 1 and verse 2, God says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Preach against it. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Go and proclaim to it the message I give you. There's just a slightly different sense of that, isn't there? Slightly different feeling. Instead of go and preach against it, proclaim to it the message. Oh, it's still a message. It's still a hard message to hear. It's still a message that God is going to destroy. It's still a message that God doesn't tolerate sin. That judgment will come one day. Yeah, it's deferred. Forty days. But judgment will come. It's the same message that we have. Judgment will come one day. It's not today. Not today. But it will come. And destruction will come. But there's hope. There's some hope there. So Jonah heads into Nineveh. He has turned round to some extent, although we were looking last week. Not everything was sorted out. He hadn't got everything right. His attitude was still not great. And in fact, we're going to see in chapter 4, he heads back downhill again. But for now, he's obeying. He's going. He's heading into Nineveh. Nineveh was a vast city for its day. Actually, the ESV has a better translation of verse 3. Verse 3 in the ESV reads, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. In other words, to get into the centre of Nineveh, um, you know, it would take a while. I mean, whether it was three days to cross the whole thing or whether three days into the centre is a little bit unclear. But it's a big city. It's a big place for its day. The NIV doesn't, doesn't really give you that sense. It reads a bit like a tourist guide, to be honest, the NIV. You know, now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. You can almost imagine it going on and saying, make sure that you go and check out the inner city farms there, especially the many cattle that are there, as you'll find out. And don't forget the spectacular palace with its superb carvings before taking a leisurely cruise on the river Tigris, capping it off with fantastic views of the city as you ride on the Nineveh Eye. Um, <laughs> That's what it can come across like. Actually, no, verse 3 is, is just saying it's a big city. It's a big city. In fact, actually, another possible translation of, of the first part of verse 3, um, which, which we, we lose the sense of here, could be this. Now, Nineveh was a city important to God. So the translators sometimes translate it as a great city or a, a, an important city. Actually, the sense is Nineveh was a city important to God. Nineveh was a great place. It was a big place. Actually, it had become known in Assyria for, for its arrogance for, and for its brutality. It wasn't a nice place to live. Maybe a bit like modern-day Syria is becoming known for. You know, just not a place to be. Just a brutal place to live. But actually, it was still important to God. Nineveh was a city important to God. And Sheffield is a city important to God. We might have things that we like about Sheffield or dislike about it. It might be different things for different people. We may have favourite parts of Sheffield. 
places that we like to go. There may be parts of Sheffield that we definitely avoid going into. There are some parts of the city that are known for its gang violence and its poverty and maybe even the gun crime. God sees our city as it is, a city in need of redemption, a city in need of transformation, a city in need of his mercy. And it's important to him. He is the God of this city. And so he sends us in the same way that he sent Jonah to proclaim God's word to the city. So Jonah sets off into the city. But remember, he's a reluctant prophet. And deep down inside for Jonah, he knows that if people repent, God will relent. And as we're going to see in, in chapter 4, he doesn't want that to happen. You know, he, he's, he's got real issues with the people of the city. It's not his city, in the same way that Sheffield is our city. It's not his city. It's a city well outside of, of Israel. And Jonah doesn't want to know. He doesn't want them to know God's mercy. So he was, he's a reluctant messenger. He's a reluctant prophet. I mean, sometimes we too can feel reluctant when it comes to telling people about Jesus. Maybe for different reasons. Maybe it's not because we really think, well, they deserve God's judgment um, and, and I want them to have it. But we might be reluctant to go for different reasons. We might read verses in the Bible, like Mark 16 and verse 15, which says, Jesus talking to his disciples and, and, and the eleven, and then, by implication, us, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. We can read words like that and we can think, oh, okay. But God's asking us to go. Oh, we can be really reluctant to do that. I mean, if I said to you right now, okay, it's a nice day, Sunday morning. We're all here together. Actually, God's speaking to us. God's really speaking to us as a people. We need to go and, and proclaim this message to Sheffield. So come on, church. Let's get up. Let's go down Ecclesall Road and we'll walk down and we'll walk to the city centre. And we're just going to talk to... We're going to stop people in the street. And we're going to talk to people about Jesus. And we're going to talk to them about sin. And we're going to talk to them about God. And, uh, you know, that's what we're going to do. Mark, Mark chapter 16, that's what it says. Let's do it. And I reckon if I said that to you now and, and meant it and you got... Oh, he really means it. Um... There's not many here would be going, yes, I've been waiting for this moment to come and do that. Now, some might, but most of us would probably go, oh, no, oh, no, no, I, I really don't fancy doing that. We can be reluctant. We find it difficult. It's a word that God gives to us. And Jonah was reluctant, so off he went. He started trudging into the city. Off he goes. Three, three days. Three days to the centre of the city. Can you imagine? Can you imagine as he's walking around what he's thinking? Oh, no. I really don't want to have to do this. Oh. You know, a few stops off at the toilet on the way. Oh, what, what, what am I going to say to them? And, and he's, he's, he's battling with his mind all the way along. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? And he's walking and he's thinking and his mind's going everywhere and he doesn't want to do it. And it, and it can be the same with us when, we, when we're coming up with something 
we know something's happening. We know, oh God, I think you want me to say this to someone or speak to someone. And, and in the end, in the end, he's only a day in. He's a day into his three-day journey and he, and he just thinks, okay, well, I'm, I'm on the outskirts, that'll do. You know, maybe he was thinking, I'm going to have to head into the city centre. I'm going to have to speak to the king. I'm going to have to go to the important places where the king is. Maybe, God doesn't say that. He just says preach to the city. But maybe that's in his mind, because obviously that's the the centre. But after a day, after a day he's had enough. And so he stands and he proclaims his message. Eight words. That's it. Eight words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. That's all he says. It's like, I'm going to do the bare minimum. Okay, God, you asked me to go and proclaim this message to the city. This is it. Eight words. I can get it into that much. I've done the job. I'm in the city, just about. Right, that's it. I'm going to go back home now. And maybe no one will take any notice. There's only a few sort of beggars on the street maybe or you know a few, few poor houses on the edge of the city but I've done it I've done my job I don't know whether you've been in similar situations yourself I can I can remember when I was down in Bournemouth once as a church we went down to Bournemouth and got involved in in uh, some uh, outreach events that Bournemouth church were doing and many of us went down at the time it was a good few years ago now many of us went down and as part of that there were different teams doing different things I managed to find myself on a team that was going knocking on doors, you know, telling people about God. So, I don't know how I got myself on that team. But, but I know that as I was going out, and we get given certain streets, and I've got my street, and I'm, I'm starting out, and I'm with Debbie. And I think she was feeling the same as me. And so we, we go to the first door, and, and you knock on a door. Now, have you ever knocked on a door and really not wanted anyone to answer it? So you kind of just go... There's a bell there, but you ignore that. I don't think they're in. Let's go to the next house. <laughs> and you, and you, you're just standing at these doors, praying that no one's there. Because <laughs> deep down inside you're thinking, I really don't ever want to speak to someone about God this morning. Hello, would you like to know about Jesus? <laughs> I don't want to do it. What am I doing here? <laughs> we, can, we can go with such fear. In whatever situation, it doesn't have to be door knocking. It might be just thinking, you know, oh, you know, we've really encouraged, church have encouraged us to invite people to a carol service or, or remember we did those questionnaires last year, the one big question thing. Oh, ask people what one big question they might have about God. Oh no, the church leaders have told me this is a really easy thing to do. Oh no, I'm not feeling it's easy at all. I really don't want to do it. You know, whatever it might be, we can have fear we can be full, uh, we can just have low expectations. Oh, I, I really don't think God's going to do anything. But God can surprise us, even in our weakness. God can just shock us and surprise us. I remember actually talking to someone here um, who said, with, with those very cards, they went and they, they asked, I don't know how they were feeling, but they asked one person about it. And, and that person in their office said, this is a great idea. Have you got any more of those cards? And they went around asking everyone in the office. That they weren't even a Christian. But they were, oh, that's this great survey and everything. God can sometimes surprise us in our weakness. And here comes the surprise in verse 5. 
This is a miraculous verse. The Ninevites believed God. I mean, four words. The Ninevites believed God. We've, we've had plenty of miracles already in this story of Jonah. We've had a storm suddenly blowing up at sea, which, which calms as soon as Jonah's thrown in the water. We've had a huge fish swallowing Jonah up. We've had the fact that Jonah can survive in the belly of the fish. But this, in verse 5 of chapter 3, this is the greatest miracle of all. The Ninevites believed God. The whole city believed God and repented. And it started with those people who Jonah spoke to first. And then the word begins to spread. It says in verse 6, when the news reached the king. The word is obviously spreading. Jonah's only spoken in the hearing of probably just a few random people on the edge of the city, only a day in. But the word is starting to spread. Those people repent and God's word is spreading. And they declare a fast. And they, and they put on sackcloths, clothes of mourning and clothes of repentance for their sin. And the word that Jonah proclaimed begins to spread throughout the city. It shows us how important for a start that the preached word is. Because until Jonah went to Nineveh, until he went there and delivered what must have been the worst message he's ever delivered in his life. It's got to be. You know, you can't imagine. You can't imagine when he had to proclaim to, God, proclaim to Israel that God was going to extend their borders. You can't imagine he just stood up there and just went, God's going to extend our borders. He, he would have been like, this is amazing news. I'm going I'm to deliver a four-hour message on this one and explain exactly how he's going to do it. Now, this is the worst message he's ever preached. Must be. But he preaches it. He says it. He delivers God's message to the people. And until then, Nineveh was lost in their sin and hopelessness. Nineveh were object, was objects, the people of Nineveh were objects of God's wrath. But they didn't know it. They hadn't got a clue. They were slowly decaying in a deathly silence, as someone has put it. And so is our city. So is our city. We have people living their lives in this very city, just a few meters away even, who are living day by day and they are unaware of God's judgment over them. They're not aware that they are in sin. As we all are. All were. They're not aware of the judgment of God on people. Many people have never heard God's message to them. And Amos chapter 8 makes it clear. It's talking about a famine and it's saying this sort of famine is the worst famine of all. A famine of God's word. Amos 11 verse, sorry, Amos 8 verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because 
of thirst. There's a thirst people don't even know about always for God's word. There's a thirst in this country. People know. Actually, people do know there's a thirst for something. They just don't know what it is. They're staggering about from one place to another, looking from one place to another in this religion or that set of beliefs or, or this, this philosophy of life or whatever it may be. And they're staggering about. And they're thirsting. And the, and the, and the young people, the young people are thirsting because they're, they're, they're teachers and their parents and, and their mentors or whoever else is, is inputting into their lives. They don't know. They haven't got the truth. And they're, they're just as clueless. And so they're, they're thirsting. They're staggering. They're fainting. They need God's word. There's such a thirst, a famine of God's word. But we are carrying, church, the truth. We are carrying God's words. We have been directed by God to bring this living water. We've been commissioned, like Jonah, to bring his message to our cities. How are we going to respond to that? Are we reluctant like Jonah? Do we feel weak? Actually, we should. There's nothing wrong with feeling weak. Actually, we should. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. That's 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27 says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. We're supposed to be weak. Elsewhere, in, in, in another letter to the Corinthians, Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're supposed to be weak. We're supposed to be fearful. It, actually, it's supposed to cast us on God and not on, our, on our, not on ourselves. But we have this message. And, and, and Romans, Paul in Romans chapter 10 uh, stresses the importance of the church carrying out God's commission to take his message of grace to our dying city and our dying nation. In Romans 10 and verse 13, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. A city, a people, a nation cannot repent unless they hear the good news, unless they hear God's message to our nation at this time. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that every individual is going to be going out and standing and preaching in the city centre. Because we've all got different gifts. And uh, as Arnold, when he's been preaching, has been outlining in, in Romans 12, everyone's got different gifts. And if one gifts to teach, then let him teach. And if one's to encourage, let him encourage them. We've all got different gifts. But we're all involved. That doesn't mean that some of us aren't involved. It doesn't mean that, oh, well, look, those who are preachers, those who are teachers, they're the ones who can bring the, the message to the city. 
Actually, no, we're the church, and the church go out, and the church are involved. And it will be all parts of the city, and it will be the nice parts of the city that we like to go to. The Ecclesaw Roads, the Fullwoods, the, the nice parks, Millhouses Park, wherever it might be, it'll be those areas. But it'll be also some of the other areas of the city that we might not choose to spend our time in, necessarily. Some in the north of the city, where it's run down and tough. Some in the east of the city. And it's not a case that we just think, oh, it's great that someone in the church is doing that. Actually, no, we're part of that with them. We're all part of it together. We're a city church. We're reaching a city. We're involved together. Some of us might be living in certain areas. Some of us might be preaching or teaching in certain areas. Some of us might be having more deep relationships with individuals in certain areas. But whatever we're doing, in whatever context, whether it's rich or poor, in whatever area, we are all involved as a church. We're one church. And we can get involved by actually going and and sometimes being there with people and supporting, taking part in some of the activities, praying. You know, there's there's some people who it's fantastic. In fact, to to, to name a name, probably embarrass her a bit, but Sarah Vandermeer. Sarah, Sarah, every time there's something on, somewhere in the city, whether it's in the north or in the east for the, for the Woodhouse Fair, whatever it is, Sarah is there. She's just helping out. And she's very much part of this congregation. And she's not being called to go and live out in those places, but she's part of it. She's involved. Actually, we're all involved. We're all involved. Often we don't think we have it in us. Often we're fearful about talking to people about God. We just think we'll get the words wrong. Or we might just think, there's enough stuff going on in my life. I've got a lot of stuff going on. A lot of things to deal with. God is just wanting us to speak out his truth. And the encouraging thing is, we're probably not going to do a worse job than Jonah. Jonah has no compassion at all for these people. I would imagine most of us do. Jonah is a reluctant preacher. He just gets it over and done with. But as soon as the message is proclaimed, God acts and the people respond. And the message begins to spread. Eventually it gets to the king. God doesn't begin with the people who are considered powerful and important. He doesn't begin with the king. You might have expected him to. You might have expected Jonah to go straight to the king. And maybe he was going to at first. And deliver his message to him. But actually, no. God always starts off by speaking to the ordinary person. When Jesus was born, it was the shepherds who were the first to know about the birth of the Messiah. And then God's news would spread from nation to nation. But through everyday people, ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, outcasts, me and you. We are the people who God uses, not the so-called important people, not the celebrities. We can so often fall into thinking, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if David Beckham became a Christian? And then he could just tell people about Jesus, and then everyone would listen to him because he's David Beckham. And he's got the media attention. But God doesn't choose to use that way. He never has. I suspect he never will. It's up to him, but I suspect he won't. I went to the Philippines once and I met this guy. He'd been, uh, he'd been in prison for many years. 
he was an assassin. He was a hired assassin. He, people used to, you know, if they wanted someone killed, they used to have a word with him. He used to go and kill them. That was his job until he got put in prison. Uh, and when he was in prison, he came to know God. And so he started to, to, to read the Bible. Actually, he couldn't read before then. But he started to read, and he, he could read the Bible. And he started to tell the other prisoners about Jesus. Just the people who were there with him. No one important. They were other prisoners. He'd, he'd talk to them, and he'd tell them, and they would respond. And the word began to spread. And the governor of the prison was like, well, what's this all about? And so he said, well, what, what, what is this you're talking about? And so he told the governor, and the governor of the prison became a Christian. And then the, and then the, then the, the um, mayor of the city, or the leader of the city, the governor of the city of Manila, capital of the Philippines, heard about it. What's going on? And actually this guy then got to preach to the governor of Manila. He was an assassin. I mean, maybe that's why the guy responded, okay, yeah, whatever you say. <laughs> no, but it wasn't. The word spreads. It started through a hired hitman. It starts through us. Whatever we're doing, whatever our background is, however, wherever we've been, it starts through ordinary people. But Jonah didn't even go and carry on preaching to lots of people. He spoke to a few people. They spread the word. The word spread. That's what happens with the gospel. The gospel spreads. We don't have to do it all the time. Maybe we're working with young people, thinking, oh, there's a lot of young people in our schools. That's all right. You don't have to do it all. You work with the people God's given you. They'll spread the word. They'll be the ones who are going into schools themselves. They'll tell their friends the word will spread. Eventually, the king hears the news. And he responds the same way as everyone else. Amazing. Can you, under, can you believe it? What a sight. The king, sitting down in dust, wearing sackcloth, and issuing decrees that call on other people to repent, including the animals. I just love how the animals keep getting a look in, by the way, in, uh, in, this, in this book of, of, uh, of Jonah. Even at the end, um, right at the end of chapter 4, God is, God is saying you know, to Jonah, Nineveh has 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. Uh, and many cattle as well. Uh, should I not be concerned about it? God's really concerned about the cattle. The king, the king here is saying, we're all going to repent. We're all going to fast. Even the sheep and the cows. We're all going to wear sackcloth. Even the cows. Get the sackcloth on them. What? What's that about? Our sin affects the whole of creation. We might look around at the world. Why is the world in such a state? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there things happening? Our sin affects the whole of creation. And as we re repent, actually it's almost the, the creation repenting as well. That's what needs to happen. And, and, and that's, what, that's what the king is saying here. That's what the king the king's saying. We, we need to repent. And actually the animals are, are, are going to not eat as well. What a noise they're going to be making when they've not eaten. It's kind of a public thing. People would have known we're repenting. Not a quiet thing. All the animals. Ah, whatever animals do. Ah, give us some food. <laughs> Get this sackcloth off me. No, they're all, sorry. They're all repenting. It's, 
it's, it's a shocking sight though, really, isn't it? The whole thing, the whole city. The king. The king. Can you imagine the queen? Can you imagine our queen? Appearing on, on the queen's speech. Christmas Day, everyone tunes in. What's she going to be wearing? Ooh, not so sure about that. Sackcloth. Declaring a fast. And that's what happened in Nineveh. The king gets the news and he issues the command, we need to repent. We need to, we need to give up on our evil ways. It's, it's not just a case of being sorry, it's a, it's a turning. We need to give up on our evil ways and violence. And, and who knows? God may yet relent. They've not had any encouragement that he will. I mean, it's, it's not even their God. It's another nation. See, it's these Israelites' God. All we've had is a message of of, of, uh, destruction. But the king is saying, God may repent. And amazingly, God did. He didn't bring about the destruction that had been threatened. The word had gone out and it hadn't returned to God empty, as it says in uh, Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11. My word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. We speak the words of God to our city, to our nation, to our communities, to our friends, to our family. Whatever it is, however weak we are, the word goes out and God says it will not return to me void. It will accomplish what I desire. As we speak, God will act. If that's what he desires. And in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus speaks about Jonah. And he speaks about the importance of the word being preached. In Luke 20, 11, verse 29, Jesus says, This is a, a wicked generation, as in Nineveh, as with us. It, acts for a, it asks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. And it goes on, the men, verse 32, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with just a generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, you know, this is what's going to be assigned to people. It's the sign of Jonah. It's the preached word. And now the Son of Man, Jesus, is assigned to this generation. Now, some people actually understand this, this, past, this thing about the sign of Jonah. It's a bit complicated for, uh, to, to get into fully. But some people understand this passage to, to be talking about um, how Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and Jesus was going to be in the tomb for three days before being raised. Um, and actually, the parallel passage to this in Matthew 12... Verse 39 does stress that. It does talk about the two things. It talks about Jesus being in the tomb. But it also talks about preaching. But many people who've thought, well, actually the sign of Jonah is is the fact he was in the fish. It's kind of puzzling because how can that be a sign to the Ninevites, they've thought? How can can Jonah being in the belly of a fish be a sign to these Ninevites so that they, they repent? Because they weren't there when Jonah was in the fish. Jonah was in a fish somewhere out at sea. And they didn't see that. 
So how can that be assigned to them? Um, but I do actually believe that Jonah being in the fish was assigned to them as well. That it was that Jonah, not only with his preaching, but what had happened to him, I believe that was a physical sign to people at Nineveh. Okay, the Ninevites, they'd not seen Jonah in the water in the fish. But as Jonah had got up from the shore where he's been sicked out, and he gets up from the shore and he heads into the city, he would have been bearing the marks of what he'd been through. I mean, his skin would probably have been bleached white, like a ghost almost, by the stomach acid in, in the fish. It might have left other scars on his body as well. He would have been stained. He would have stunk of death. He would have absolutely reeked. He was a visual sign of what God was going to do with Nineveh. What God would do with sinners. And God often did that with his prophets. He didn't just use what they said. He used them as well. Their lives. They didn't just use their words to proclaim God's message. Although that was so important. If Jonah hadn't spoken any words at all, there's no way that the Ninevites could have responded. If he'd have just walked into the city, look, stinking and just bleached white, they would have just gone, oh, just, who are you? Or been scared or freaked out or whatever. But he spoke as well. But actually, he was a visual sign as well. And God often uses that. Hosea, the prophet, was commanded to marry a prostitute. And his life became a, a living illustration of the nation's prostitution in terms of God's relationship with them. How they just went after other gods. They prostituted themselves. And yet Hosea is commanded, marry a prostitute and I will show, speak my word through your mouth but also through your life. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was also a living sign. You might get passages in Ezekiel that you find very difficult to understand. Because he's just weird. Ezekiel's just the weirdest person ever. So, so you get to Ezekiel chapter 4. And this is what God says. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet. Okay? Clay tablet. Put it in front of you and draw on it the city of Jerusalem. Oh, okay. Draw in a little picture of the city of Jerusalem. Then lay siege to it. Okay. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set camps up against it, and put battering rams around it. And then take an iron pan and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face over towards it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This is just on a bit of clay. He's drawn a picture. And then he's getting battering rams, and it's like kids, you know, doing their thing. And then Jonah's there. And God says, this will be a sign to the house of Israel. <laughs> they must have thought, what on earth are you doing, Ezekiel? You weirdo. He's doing what God told him to do. It gets worse. He says, then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. For over a year, 
Ezekiel is just lying on his left side like this. 390 days. People walking past him. Thinking, what are you doing now, you nutter? You've laid siege against some picture that you've drawn. Now you're lying on your left side for 390 days. After you finish this, says God, lie down again. What? This time on your right side and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I've assigned for you 40 days, a day for each year. He lies for 390 days on one side, on his left side. And then he turns over and lies for 40 days on his other side. And then God says this to him. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. So he's prophesying. At this point he's speaking God's words. But what does God say? With bared arm. What's what's Ezekiel's arm going to be like? Having laid on it for 390 days. It would just be horrendous. It would be a mess. Ezekiel prophesied, but actually how he lived his life and what he did and who he was spoke to the people as well as he prophesied with bared arm. They would have known something of God in that as he spoke God's words. A living visual sign. And so with Jonah. And so with Jesus. The greatest sign of all God's judgment on sin and the greatest sign of his merciful grace to those who repent is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a message he speaks. He lived it. He died it. He rose it. He is the message. The whole of the message that we proclaim rests on it. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says in verse 12, If it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, and not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are, if we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we, uh, sorry, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if in fact the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have more have hope in Christ, we're to be more pitied than all men. He's saying the message is, is useless unless Christ has been raised. He's not just saying it. Oh, God forgives you. Yeah, God's simply, and you're forgiven now. No. What's the evidence of that? Actually, the physical body of Jesus. The physical death, the scars that he bore on the cross. The empty tomb, the appearances, the new life, the raised, risen, resurrected Lord Jesus. When we preach Jesus, we preach him and proclaim his death and his resurrection. We proclaim his judgment on sin and mercy. He's a sign 
to this generation. And actually, too, we, in a way, are a sign to this people. 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. You know, we, Jesus wasn't living in our time. People don't see Jesus walking around. They don't see the empty tomb. What do they see? They see us. And Paul says, we, we carry around the death and resurrection of Jesus in our body. It's in us. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death's at work in us. Life's at work in you. Jesus is seen through us, through our life, through our body, through the things we go through, through our experiences, and through what we speak, the truth that we speak. How we handle things that happen to us in our lives are a sign towards to people, which point towards Jesus. The difficulties, the trials that we go through, they're a sign towards Jesus. I mean, like Jonah, we might have even been through times when we haven't been walking with God, when we've rebelled, or even before we knew him. And and actually in our life, we may still be bearing the scars of that. We don't just get rid of it. Jonah bore the scars of his rebellion. We might bear the scars of our rebellion too. But even as we've heard this morning, God is bringing us out from a place of affliction to a fruitful place. He's wanting to use us. He's wanting to use ordinary people. He always has. He's wanting to use weak people. He's wanting to use fearful people. He's wanting to use people who've rebelled against him, who've tried to run away. And God said, I've not finished with you, and I've not finished with this city. You might think you've taken yourself out of my purposes, but no, I want you back here. And I've got a message that I want to preach to Sheffield. And I've got a message that I want to preach to this nation. And in our fear and weakness, we can be signs to this lost city as we proclaim God's judgment on sin and the new life and forgiveness and mercy which can be found in Christ. In just the same way as Nineveh, Sheffield is a city important to God. So let's go. Scared, scarred, weak, possibly reluctant, fearful. But let's proclaim God's message to its people. Let's pray.